Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 287th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jennifer Murray. Jennifer is the owner and founder of Stonebridge Financial Advisors, an independent RAA based in Morristown, New Jersey, that oversees $100 million of assets under management for 50 client households. What's unique about Jennifer, though, is how she built on her personal tragedy of losing her husband to colon cancer to build a practice that specializes in recent widows and intentionally works with a limited number of widowed clients to provide a more intimate service without needing to hire up staff around her. In this episode, we talk in depth about how after becoming a widow herself and facing all the financial challenges and questions after losing a spouse, Jennifer realized that she had the expertise to help other women going through the same difficulties and decided to focus on newly single women. How a combination of referrals from friends and family, offering advice in her specialization through seminars, bereavement groups, and local hospital foundations were what helped Jennifer gain clients in her early years. And why Jennifer very intentionally only works with no more than 50 clients so that she can provide her desired level of attentive service to clients without needing to hire up or feel the pressure to expand and move beyond her own comfort zone. We also talk about how Jennifer realized after years as a lending officer at a private banking institution working with high net worth individuals that she could have a much greater impact in clients' lives by working with them more holistically as a financial advisor. How even though Jennifer was a well-prepared CFP and had experience in finance, she learned as she experienced widowhood that as a single person, there's always a need to have a thinking partner like a financial advisor. And how networking at financial conferences and receiving positive feedback from clients early in her career gave Jennifer the confidence to eventually launch her own RIA to build her own ideal practice. And be starting to listen to the end, where Jennifer shares how developing a well-targeted website early on in launching her practice helped increase its growth exponentially, and why it continues to support her growth even though she hasn't updated it in nearly 10 years now, why Jennifer eventually had to stop taking new financial planning clients, and how she handles prospects that she doesn't have the capacity to serve. And how fulfillment as a financial advisor comes not only from the good that we do for clients, but the feeling that we as financial advisors are valued by our clients and are being paid well for the good work that we do. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jennifer Murray. Welcome, Jennifer Murray, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. I'm happy to be here. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion and you know just talking about the the journeys in the past that we that we take to uh, to build practices to build kind of focused specialization practices uh, you know I've I've kind of commented over the years that you know our, our industry has I find sometimes this sort of near obsession with like growth 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 more 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 and you know not that there's anything wrong with growth some people like to grow big things but you know you can make a really amazing uh income and career in this business with the, you know, as I like to term it, just sort of finding like your 50 great clients that are, are, are good to work with you. And 
a lot of us can service 50 great clients basically entirely alone or, or maybe just with a little bit of, of part-time support. I know you would literally have built like a wonderful practice with $100 million under management and 50 great clients and, and a part-time staff member. And so uh, just looking forward to talking about like what that journey looks like, how you get to your point of kind of the, the 50 great clients that you're working with, you know, how you find a specialization, a way to attract 50 great clients to you and, um, and what that journey has been over, I think you said now it's been you know 15 plus years of, of building the firm. Well, great. Thank you. Yes. Um, I am in a good position. I believe that with the clients that I'm serving, I am happy to help them. I, feel that um, I'm adding tremendous value to their life and I also enjoy working with them. So it's been it's been a good um, 16 year ride. I, um, I started my practice in 2006 and at that point I wasn't sure who specifically I was going to be working with. I thought sort of you know regular folks, couples, friends. Um, and then as I, started to meet more clients and also based on my own personal experience of being widowed, it turned about that I was getting a lot of referrals for women who were recently widowed. So I decided to, in 2009, really create a a niche practice where I worked primarily with women who were widowed. And then as it it, um, transitioned a little bit, I also started working with women who were divorced. So that is my primary focus is women who are widowed and divorced, Um, I have 50 clients, 35 of them are single women, and 15 are couples. So I I will work with um, couples, but my focus is really on single women. And the the asset base for them is about $100 million? Yes, $100 million in total for the 50 client households that I serve. See, plus or minus a little market volatility these days. (laughs) Right, exactly. So take us back to when you were starting a practice in 2006 to go down this road. So I, I guess first is I'm wondering, like, were you new to the industry and in starting a practice or were you already in the industry and, and decided to go out on your own and hang your, hang your shingle as it were? Right. So I was new to the industry in 2006. I had worked... Um, for Chase Manhattan Bank for many years out of college. And I worked in private banking. So I was familiar with um, working with high net worth individuals, but I primarily worked in a lending capacity. So I wasn't providing personal financial advice. I was a lending officer helping helping clients get loans either against private company stock or art or custody assets. I had taken the classes um, in 1996 and in 1997, I sat for the CFP exam and I passed and I decided at that point that I would stop working for Chase and that I would start working as a financial advisor. So I worked for a couple years for, I think two years for a financial advisor in Princeton. And I only worked one day a week just so I could get some experience And that worked well. And I I learned about the financial planning process. I was able to use the CFP marks because of my experience working at Chase. And um, I learned a lot. You know, even though it was one day a week, I had two young children and it it afforded me an opportunity to, to dabble in financial planning without actually going full steam ahead. 
And um, so that was in 98 and 99 that I worked, um, you know, in the industry, more or less. I was I was going to ask, like, just how one day a week came came about. So you you had you had young children at the time. So I'm I'm presuming then this was a like partially uh, partially as a stay at home parent with young children, and then also doing one day a week of part time work, so you could get some experience and just balance uh, work opportunities and family obligations. Exactly, that's exactly correct. So, so I guess if if you were already like ten plus years in at least broader financial services industry and you know at at, at Chase, um, like what led you to pursue CFP classes in the first place in in 1996? I mean, were you already having a vision then of I don't really want to work in the banking lending capacity. I'd I'd rather be an advisor and started moving that direction, or was like something else going on that led you to take the plunge into CFP classes to begin with? Actually, Chase was offering to pay for the program for um, private bankers who wanted to take the CFP classes. So that piqued my interest. And I also knew ultimately that I wanted to work with more regular folks and not um, wealthy families or ultra high net worth individuals who I was working with at the private bank. So I, I had an idea that what would give me more um, passion would be to work with people that were more like myself and not work with family offices. All right, very cool. So what was the goal when you took the like the one day a week role with the firm in Princeton? Just if you if you didn't need it for CFP experience because the the Chase Financial Services experience still counted, like what what were you doing or trying to get out of that that role? I was trying to learn about the financial planning process in experience because what I had learned over the classes was wonderful, but I didn't really feel confident in how to bring that to a client. So working underneath an advisor in Princeton, she helped me understand how to develop a financial plan. I think at that point we used MoneyTree. So I learned the financial planning software. I learned about investments, which I wasn't as well-versed in from my years at Chase. And right. um, L- I just a little more on the debt side of the balance sheet right. than the investment exactly. side of the balance sheet. Mm-hmm. I was very good at understanding a tax return because, as a lending officer, you needed to be able to right. pull apart an individual's tax return. So I was very good on that side. But the investments and the retirement planning projections—that's where I felt like I needed um, some broader experience. So working the one day a week gave me an insight into how that process worked and made me well aware that that was something that I wanted to pursue full time at some point um, when my children were a little older. And, and how did you find the, like the part-time role in the first place? It was interesting. One of my instructors for the CFP review class knew of this NAP, and she was actually a NAPFA planner in Princeton, and introduced me. And I met with her, and uh, we hit it off. And uh, she needed some help, and I was happy to help one day a week. It was an hour or so drive from my house, so it wasn't convenient. Ooh, but, yeah, that's, um, that's yes. a little bit of a haul. Yes, but um, it was great experience. And then after about a year or two, I decided that I couldn't commute any longer and I wanted to find something closer to home. And um, I did receive an offer from a, an RIA in New Jersey that um, closer to my, my house there where I could take on a full-time role 
And right about the time I was about to accept that role, which was in 2000, my husband was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. So I just decided that I couldn't take on a full-time job at that point. I needed a lot of flexibility as he and I um, went through, you know, that the the years that were to come with doctor's appointments and, and other challenges. So I ultimately turned down the offer from the RIA firm and um, worked part-time while he was sick for about four years um, in, for an accounting firm. I, I did want to stay um, working part-time um, during those years, but I did not want a lot of responsibility. So I worked part-time for an accounting firm, and that helped me um, you know, balance my responsibilities at home, my husband's illness, and also feel that I was staying current on um, my professional career. Okay. And so 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 what happened next on this journey? So then in in 2004 my husband did pass away um from colon cancer and um my children were 10 and 12 at the time. So I um you know I had to go through the um, experience myself of being widowed and make sure that I got everything that I needed to do in order as a a widow and a single parent. And I learned a lot, obviously, from that experience, as difficult as it was. Um, But I also learned that as as well prepared as I was, both being a CFP and having experience um, in, in finance, that I needed a partner to sort of help me make some good decisions. So um, I started talking to financial advisors in my area, uh, just networking, letting them know um, about my interest in joining the you know, a full-time profession, and also about some of the challenges and decisions I needed to make as a widow. And I found it extremely helpful to have their perspective. So it really um, helped me understand that no matter how confident or capable you are in managing finances and investments as a single person, you always need sort of a thinking partner to help you sort of as a sounding board. Interesting. And, and I guess in that context, kind of particularly as a, as a widow, as a single person at that point, because you know, those may have been conversations you had with a spouse in the past, and that's not a that's not a conversation partner now. That's not right. a thinking partner now. Right. Exactly. So that was you know sort of eye opening to me, and it it helped me frame my um, understanding of working with widows in the future because I knew how confident and comfortable I was with financial concepts and how difficult decisions were for me. I could only imagine for someone who didn't have that background or experience how difficult it would be for them. So so it's 2004 and 2005. You're now starting to look for, for jobs or opportunities. So it sounds like the, the initial path was you were looking for financial advisor roles at existing firms that you could join. Correct. But ultimately, you launched your own firm. So what happened? Right. So after my husband passed away, I knew that I needed um, total flexibility around my schedule. And having you know, the two young children who were just about to be teenagers, I, I knew that I, di- I couldn't work full time. And I couldn't also have a job where I, you know, was responsible reporting to a boss, which, you know, had needed me to be in a meeting at a certain time. I really uh-huh. knew that that was important, that my flexibility was important to me. 
So what I decided to do was rather than go and work for a firm, either in a part or a full-time job, I decided to establish my own RIA in 2004 and start working with friends and family and, and networking and sort of laying the groundwork for what I wanted to build for the future. I, um, I was lucky enough to have some life insurance, and I also was receiving Social Security income for the children and for myself. So I had a cushion to be able to slowly build a business that suited my lifestyle and my family, and that's exactly what I did. Very cool. Very cool. I, um, you know, obviously for uh, just for what we do as as financial advisors, and you know, as like as someone who who started on the life insurance side of the industry, you know, I, I long since moved away from uh, you know selling and delivering uh, life insurance policies. But one of the things that you 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 know learn and experience in the life insurance world is it's a it's a very unique experience when you deliver someone a. A, a check for a claim mm-hmm. when when someone's passed away, and as, as tragic as those moments are, like the 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 flexibility and opportunity that comes when you can make decisions for yourself and family and not be in a dire financial situation because there was life insurance and there's no dollars uh, to fund that transition. To me, just it's a uh, it's a very powerful testimony just around the benefits of of financial planning and, and what we do when you were able to say like, hey, I want to be especially maximally flexible for my children during this time so I can start a business where I'm not necessarily going to have a lot of income initially instead of taking a salary job because the life insurance makes that possible. And then I can build the thing that I need to build to support the family. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that my own experience with life insurance definitely has helped me when I'm in discussions with couples um, regarding life insurance and how important it is. And, you know, for term insurance, especially how inexpensive it is, but how it will provide the surviving spouse with opportunities that they would otherwise not have at a time when you really are trying to create a new life for yourself and you, you need to have as much flexibility as possible. Wow. So, so talk to us more about like what this, what this launch looked like, what this initial firm looked like as you were getting started. Well, um, in 2004 and 2005, the firm was Jennifer Murray CFP. And then I think I had another name, Chatham Financial Advisory Group, which was the town I lived in. And I really just worked with friends and family or anybody that was referred to me. I worked out of my house. I did financial planning. I would um, do some investment um, analysis or recommendations but I was really just getting my feet wet. I um, spent a lot of time going to FPA conferences and NAPFA conferences, and I networked a lot and met some really wonderful advisors in New Jersey who helped me, you know, every step of the way. I remember calling um, an advisor that I became friendly with in New Jersey when um, I had some questions about investments, and I just found the um, willingness to help um, amazing. And it really just allowed me to slowly build my confidence that I would be able to pursue a career in this field. So um, I just really took it slow and steady for the first two years. And then in 2006, 
I decided to form Stonebridge Financial Advisors. And that's about the time I knew that this was going to be a long-term career for me. I had spent the first two years kind of analyzing that, and I was confident at that point. And um, my husband was the director of bridge construction for New York City. And Stone, I thought, was strength. And I thought so many women need strength during a, a difficult period. So I named the firm Stone Bridge Financial Advisors. And I thought that, um, you know, a bridge is a good metaphor, a good um, symbol of sort of a transition or two people meeting on a bridge, one person having crossed the bridge or going over troubled waters. I just felt like it was a good name for my firm. So I, I named my firm and I um, met, I would go to uh, NAPFA study group meetings and I met Bernie Kiley, who um, was running the meeting and um, telling him about how I had started my business and how I was doing. And he was moving offices and he had an extra space in his new office. And he asked me if I wanted to sublet it from him. And I was a little bit hesitant, but then I took the leap of faith and I started here in my Morristown office um, in 2006 under the name Stonebridge. And then I feel like I really got serious about, you know, setting up a business plan and and taking all the necessary steps to really make the business um, grow. Very cool. Very cool. So share with us a little bit more getting to that point of confidence to say like, okay, I think this is the thing I'm going to do and stick with as, you know, as opposed to not, or potentially going another another route. Mm-hmm. I think for me, it was um, feedback from clients or people that I helped, just saying, you're really good at this, or thank you so much for explaining this to me, or you've helped me tremendously. So just getting feedback from clients that I was making a difference or that um, they appreciated my advice And I think their confidence in me gave me confidence in myself. Um, I felt like um, I was generally a little bit not very confident in my ability to to start a business. And I remember my dad and my um, husband saying to me when when my husband was sick and my dad was um, visiting, and my dad worked for the government and my husband worked for New York City. And I think at one point I was telling them both, I think I, I think I may at some point start my own financial planning business. And they were both, why would you do that? Why would you start your own business? Why don't you just go work for somebody? And then I had to remember that they both came from, you know, government employee jobs. So they did not have the same risk appetite that I had. But I knew that I needed flexibility. So when I started to hear from clients that um, that they were happy with the services I provided. It built my confidence to um, actually say, you know what, I'm going to set up an LLC. I'm going to rent office space. I'm going to network. I'm going to I'm going to take a leap of faith. But um, I do believe that the confidence, not only on the part of my clients but also on the part of other advisors in New Jersey that I networked with who said, you know, you have an amazing story. You have um, a background that's well-suited for this industry and we're here to, we're here to help you any step of the way. So I feel like, you know, I was blessed on both ends. 
So as you're as you're trying to get initial clients in that in that first year or two, I guess I'm just wondering like what was it like and what was the dynamic trying to get those first few family and friend client referrals? I mean, like are, were you managing their retirement portfolios and 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 the whole full service sort of thing? Were you simply doing kind of piecemeal advice, pay me by the hour for advice and engaging that way? Like what was the, what was the scope of planning when you were first getting started? When I Before I established Stonebridge Financial Advisors, I was doing hourly financial advice. And my first um, client was my personal trainer. And then it was his parents. And then it was a friend of his. And then it was one of my neighbors. So it just kind of um, fell into place for me. And they were all, you know, good friends so that I felt like I could take my time, do good work, and, and feel like I could learn at the same time as I was helping them. So I did hourly financial advice up until I started Stonebridge Financial Advisors. And then when I started Stonebridge, I um, was still thinking that I would do hourly financial advice or financial plans, but I did a plan for a um, neighbor of mine, a couple, they were both attorneys, and I presented a a retirement plan for them. And I made some recommendations about portfolio uh, allocation. And I I was at their house. I remember it was an evening meeting in 2006. I had only formed Stonebridge a couple months earlier. And um, they said, well, who's going to um, make the changes to our investment accounts so that they're more in line with what you're recommending? And I'll never forget. I said, I will. <laughs> um, I guess I can do that for you. I know. It was such a, like, I, I remember that moment like it was yesterday. And they said, okay, that sounds great. And then I remember leaving their house and um, coming into the office next day, and I saw Bernie Kylie, and I said, Bernie, you're not going to believe this, but I have my first investment management client. And he said, wonderful. And I said, I don't even have a custodian. I said, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and so he was great. He said, okay, I'm going to call uh, a contact. I have a TD Ameritrade. I'm going to tell them about you. Um, and I'm going to see if they can help you um, set up uh, a custodial relationship. And he did that for me. And um, I, I I started on the TD Ameritrade platform in 2006. I became approved as a dimensional fund advisor. So I started using some of their funds. Um, and uh, Bernie also gave me his investment advisory agreement because I didn't even have an investment advisory agreement. I had a financial yeah. planning agreement, but I did not have an agreement for a client to sign to give me authorization as their investment advisor. So that was really just kind of a, everything kind of fell in place after that. Um, but it was you know, it was it was a big leap of faith on my part to all of a sudden go from hourly financial planning to, um, and this client had several million dollars to to managing several million dollars. Oh, so it's like you, it was a big client out of the gate. Oh yes, it was a very big client, and then um, with time, I started getting more investment management clients. Um, 
And uh, a lot of my friends, you know, being a single woman and living in a, a suburban town like I do, there were a lot of women that were rooting for me, you know, to do well. I got a lot of referrals. I also had um, a friend of mine, I remember in the early years, 2006, there was a fundraiser. And every time there was a fundraiser, she would say, can I buy a, a gift certificate for a two-hour consultation with you? I want to donate it to a um, fundraiser that um, either the church is having or someone else is having. So she really tried to help me get my name out there. And oh, awesome. um, yeah, it was it was good. So that's sort of how it started in 2006. So as you were getting started with this, you know, as, as you said, ultimately, you, uh, you know, you have this focus into widows it expanded a little bit further into into divorces later so was the widow focus there in 2006 when you were getting started because you you know tragically had been recently widowed at that point like was that the focus out of the gate or did that only come later that came later so out of the gate i was just looking to work with you know at that point anybody who wanted financial advice just because i really wanted to learn also and i wanted to learn as much as I could about different client situations and scenarios. But I think the realizing in meeting with clients or I would do um, seminars at the library or at different bereavement groups or at a hospital foundation. So I would network and people would ask me to give talks about like what every woman needs to know about her finances. So I was doing um, some seminars like that. And what I started finding is that women would come up to me at the end and tell me a story that either happened to them or happened to someone else where they either as a single woman or as a widow, were not well served by um, either family or other financial advisors. So I started to realize that that was a group of, of individuals that I could really make a difference because um, having a lived experience, but also um, sort of being an advocate for 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 women in that in that situation. So it kind of, I guess, within a year or two, I realized that that was a group of people that I really wanted to work with. And it was around that time that I um, developed my website. So I did not have a website um, until 2009. And a lot of people would say, you know, you need to have a website so you can get your name out there. I did not. I was a little hesitant to do that. But when I designed my website, which has not been redesigned, unfortunately, since then. So it's really, if you go to my website, you will be very shocked at how antiquated it is. But I, I tailored it specifically for women. And that was um, a choice that I made because I did want to work with women. I did want to hold myself out as being a specialist in that area. And I figured if couples also wanted to work with me, that was fine. I didn't think that they would say, oh, no, I'm not going to call her. or She's not going to be the right person for us because my website was tailored to working with women, but it gave me a lot of credibility. And I, I remember women saying to me when they'd call, you know, I really liked your website. And then they'd say, I didn't know whether I was on the website for a financial advisor or a yoga studio. So it was kind of had a very soft feel to it. And I think it was not intimidating. Um, so I started, it was 2010, which I took on about I don't know, 10 clients. And I think part of it was my presence on uh, the web. 
so talk to us a little bit more about what what growth looked like in the early years. I mean, I, I am struck kind of the the first sizable investment client actually came from not offering investment management as a service, but solely being in the in the hourly realm, which which is a path I've I've seen for a lot of advisors over the years. A lot of folks that start out as hourly end out moving towards investment management because it's at some point you sit across from a client that says like, can't you just do this? for me like i already worked with you i already trust you like can't you just do this for me i don't i don't really want to do it myself uh but there is something sort of interestingly powerful that you know for a lot of advisors that start in the investment side of the business like the only thing we have to sell is investments that's where we start that's where we create our value proposition and and that can be a tough sale starting on the planning side to the point that you're literally charging full-fledged hourly planning fees, like it absolutely forces you to really deliver good full valued financial planning or you're you're not going to get your hourly fee. And that often ends up being the thing that creates the deep, meaningful relationship and trust with the client that then makes them say, can't, can you just do all of this for me as well? Right. Absolutely. And I, I would say that I always led with planning. Um, any of the clients that I did work with, they usually came in for planning initially. And then at some point, they would make a decision that they wanted um, ongoing investment management. It wasn't probably until about 2015 or 2016 where I stopped taking any sort of financial planning only engagements. But a lot of my growth from 2010 to 2016, let's say, came from planning um, either a client, I did a plan for them, let's say in 2010, and then they may have come on as an investment management client in 2012. So I, um, I was doing standalone planning up until about 2016. And then in 2016, I got to the point where I um, was sort of maxed out with 50 clients and I wasn't able to do standalone planning. So I, I stopped offering that service, but I did offer what I called a two-hour consultation. So if a client came in with a limited scope project or discussion that we could have in two hours, I continued to um, offer that service, but I really didn't want to do the, you know, the first draft and the final financial planning. And I also felt like as time went on, clients were less interested in that. And um, it it just became kind of a way, I felt like a waste of a good uh, relationship, but that a series of two-hour consultations was a better use of my time and their time, and it helped made them more accountable uh, versus you know just sort of doing the first draft and then having um, them come back but not having done any of the work that was um, asked of them in the first meeting. So I am. Um, I I learned a lot through the planning process and I would consider myself, you know, an excellent planner for the hundred, you know, I'd say 20, I did about 25 to 30 financial plans in one capacity or another from 2010 to 2016. So I learned a lot from the 300 or so clients that um, I met during those years. So talk to us about just how the growth 
actually flowed as you started taking on clients, as you started taking on uh, assets or management clients. Uh, like you know, the fir- first year or two of uh, of 0405 was kind of the you know the friends and family uh, hourly work. Like let's just get some confidence and make sure this is the thing we want to do. You 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 launched formally in 2006. Uh, ultimately, decided to focus on women in 2009. So take us back to that period of like 06, 07, 08, 09. Like what did growth look like? I mean, how many how many clients were you getting? What how what like what did revenue look like in the first few years? Okay. So in 06, I had three clients. So the one I had told you about, and then I had two other clients come in in 06. So in 06, I was probably, I think I had about $41,000 of revenue. So I didn't, I had about, um, I think I had in 2007, I had $7 million of assets under management. So I didn't have a lot. But I was able to, because I said I also had social security income and I had life insurance, I was able to kind of cover my living expenses and cover the business expenses. So I was doing all right up until, um, you know, 09. Now in 07 and 08, I did not get any clients, no investment management clients. I had financial planning clients, but no regular ongoing investment management clients. And then in 09, I got three investment management clients. And then in 2010, I got about 10 investment management clients. And I think part of it was my website. And part of it was these clients had been through 0809 and started and realized that they needed some financial, um, you know, ongoing investment management help and financial planning assistance. So um, by the end of 2010, I had about 18 million under management. And um that was really kind of a, a tipping point for me in 2010. And then in 2011, I um, I had about 30 million. So it went up by, I'd say my AUM went up about by about $10 million a year um, through um, a period of years. And it wasn't until 2014 that I was able to pay myself a salary commensurate with what I would make if I had gone and worked for a larger um, RIA as a you know a senior wealth advisor. So it was until 2014 that I really wasn't able to. My net profit wasn't such that I was able to um, pay myself. You know what 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 I would say was commensurate with my experience. But after 2014 till today, it's you know it's all gravy. It's all profit. Right. Which is wonderful. <laughs> so there was that's uh, yep, I think the business I, scales very well once you hit that crossover point. Oh yeah, exactly. And I hit that in 2014. Um, so that was that was an that was a good a good point for me. And um, and um, I you know I I think up until 2014 I really you know if I went into a client financial planning meeting I was so overly prepared and you know nervous and <laughs> and just always you know thinking I was going to say something wrong or give bad advice. I really didn't feel that comfort level and it wasn't until I guess I was 10 years of running the business maybe 2016 where I felt like I could go into a client meeting and I had enough knowledge to be able to dispense good advice. And what I didn't have the answer for, I felt confident saying to the client, I need to get back to you on that. You know, and before then, I felt like if I said I needed to get back to them on something, that would mean that I, you know, I wasn't 
good at my job or I didn't have enough knowledge or I wasn't um, as professional as I thought I was. But I think the confidence that came from being able to say to a client, you know, this is something I haven't seen before. Let me look into it. Um, it was a time in my career where I started to feel confident in my ability and not worry if I didn't have the answer. I'm struck by the by the journey as well of just you know like three three clients in in 06 at least no additional investment clients no 708 only only gain the planning only clients just three more in 2009 and then 2010 like you picked the specialization made a website that speaks directly to the specialization and brought in about twice as many clients that year as you had in the pre or prior four cumulatively like that's a it's a very dramatic shift for uh, for for getting that shift. So I, I guess just talk to us a little bit more of like what like what changed that it was just such a such a turning point in in growth of the firm. Um, I'm, I'm, I think it really had to do with the website because, um, if a client Googled financial advisors for women in New Jersey, my website would come up and I was starting to get calls. I think I got some from the NAPFA, um, the referral program. I can't remember what it's called now, but, um, because I was a NAPFA member, I was getting some NAPFA referrals, but I got some large, um, clients who were widowed. And um, that really um, helped because I there was a significant amount of assets under management at that point. I also had a um, CFP candidate who had passed the exam but needed the experience, and she worked for me for a couple of years, 2010 and 2011. So I had some support while I was taking on those additional clients. And then the same thing, I had another CFP candidate who worked with me to get the experience in 2012. So for those high growth years, which were 2010, 11, and 12, I did have support of a another financial advisor to sort of help me through those years. Because at that point, I don't even think I had red tail. I was writing my notes. You know, I would come out of a client meeting and type up my notes in Word and then just scan and then put them in a binder. I don't even think right. I was scanning things then. I had binders for every client. It was very antiquated. Um, but I, um, I had support and I, I had a lot of confidence that it was going to continue to grow if I wanted it to. And um, I remember, you know, being at a NAPFA conference and um, there was a panel of women advisors and they were talking about success and being a female advisor. And that was about the point where I was trying to figure out, should I hire someone? What should I, um, you know, what should I do in terms of promoting myself more. And I remember one of the advisors had said that success is having a practice that's perfect for you, having the dream practice. And I thought long and hard about what that meant to me. And I realized that I wanted to be a solo financial advisor. I did not want to hire a team to work with me. I wanted to have the relationship with the client and have total um, sort of control, for lack of a better word, over that relationship. So I made a conscious effort in 2011 to really only take clients that were in line with the type of client I wanted to work with because I know I didn't want to grow for growth's sake. I wanted to grow very intentionally. 
And and what defined that like right right kind of client for you? Um women. I think I really liked working with women. My experience was such that um it was very relationship driven, um very um collaborative. I I liked the um, feedback that I got at the end of meetings, how much I helped them, how much more confident or empowered they felt. And I, I would often say that when you have a couple as a client, you know, you have two clients, but when you have a single woman as a client, it's one client. And then someone said, yes. And sometimes when you have a couple, it's really three clients. It's him, yeah. her, and them. And them. <laughs> so um, I felt that I um, I liked working with women because it was a one-on-one relationship and it wasn't a two-on-one relationship. And I liked that. And um, I just, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I just, happen that way. I guess it's just women liked working with me and I liked working with women. So I decided that um, that would be my specialty. At one point, I went to a divorce association for divorce financial planners and I was thinking of specializing also in that area and uh, working with women who were divorcing. But I um, I didn't really like that very much. I felt like I, I would work with a woman well after she was divorced, but going through the divorce process, I did not think I was well suited for mm. that. Um, so I do have clients that are divorced, but they came to me, you know, years after they had gone through the process. And I was able to work, you know, well with them. But the couple clients that I would do hourly work for who were actually going through a divorce, I found it really challenging. So I um I, I pivoted away from that and decided to just concentrate on on um, most predominantly women who were widowed. And you had said just overall like this realization after the NAPFA session of I really wanted to be a solo advisor. So I guess describe more like just what what was it about solo advisor that made it like this is this is what I want it to look like or or alternatively like what what did you not like about not solo? <laughs> advisor. <laughs> well, I guess I really liked working with clients and I wasn't sure how much I wanted to pull myself away from that and develop a team or, um, you know, have human resource um, issues or concerns. I, I, I just didn't want to feel like I had anything else on my plate other than serving my advice, serving my clients as best I could. And I felt like if I built a business, then I had to worry about employees and I had to worry about payroll and I had to worry about, um, you know, what what they may or may not be doing in a meeting or whether or not they were coming to work. And as a single parent, I felt like I had enough on my plate in terms of managing, um, you know, the family that, you know, having employees was going to be something that was going to be a challenge. And when I did projections, I figured out that I could do very well, you know, just sort of having a simple staying in my lane and having a very simple practice that was very constant concentrated. And I didn't need the, you know, I felt like to a certain extent, yes, my ego would like to know that I had, instead of a hundred million under management, I have, you know, a billion under management or, and I have offices in three states. I, that wasn't important to me. And it would take a lot of energy I felt on my part to get to that place. And I wanted a better balance in life, mm -hmm. um, especially in light of what I'd been gone 
gone through with my right. my husband that um you know good enough was good enough and I was very happy with what I saw as a future as a solo advisor. And so what did you like what did you look at as the future? I mean like how, how did you project it out or what were you looking at to say like that these are good numbers or this is good opportunity this is working for me? Well, at that point, I was taking on probably eight to 10 clients a year. So I figured if that continued and my AUM was going up by about $10 million a year, that that would provide me with a very good living. And um, I, that was what was happening. So it was, it was kind of coming to fruition. What happened in um, 2004 is a financial advisor that I had met in a study group meeting um, asked me out to lunch um, and we had lunch and he said that the reason that he had asked me was he was preparing a letter to be sent to his clients in case anything happened to him. He either became disabled or or passed away. His wife was to send this client this letter out to his clients. He was a solo advisor like me. And in the letter, he was going to give his clients a recommendation of a couple advisors in New Jersey to contact. And he asked me if he could include me in the letter. And I said, sure, absolutely. You know, thank you very much. It was funny because when he took me to lunch, he was asking me all sorts of questions. And I felt like, I feel like I'm on a date. Like he was just kind of like Uh, interviewing me. And and it it turns out you were. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And then at the end, he said, well, the reason I asked you out to lunch, and then he told me. And so I said, sure, absolutely. And then um, never thinking that anything would happen, um, a year later, he did pass away. And um, yes, and his wife called me um, to tell me that um, he had passed away and that she was sending the letter out and she wanted me to know that he had passed away so that when I get calls, I'm prepared. So um, I did um, receive calls from about 10 of his clients. I met with um, about eight or nine, um, all except for one hired me. So in that year, I took on eight of his clients all at once, and it was you know set, you know maybe ten or twenty million dollars. It was it was a it was a large amount, and um, that kind of also boosted my practice in terms of you know wow. taking on twenty million dollars without. And the other thing is, he said, you know, my wife is. <laughs> fine. There's life insurance. She's not going to need anything. So if they come to you, it's just for you. So I didn't, it wasn't like I acquired the clients from his estate or anything like that. So that was a really big boost to my business. And interestingly, um, of the eight, I still have five, but three left. And um, two of them were couples and they just were not good fits. And it, it was interesting because when I took them on, I thought, oh, this will be fine. But shortly after, I started to see some red flags and um, they ultimately left, what, which was fine. And what, what were the red flags? Like, what are red flags for you? Um, well, they would ask w- one of the clients, um, would question everything I did, like anything, any trade I made. Um, And I was on a discretionary basis, but he would come in and say, I don't understand this, or I don't understand that. And and like come into my office unannounced um, and just kind of show up. And I said, you know, you really need to make an appointment or we just talked about this in our last meeting, but he was, he was very confrontational. And, um, I I do remember he came in on a Friday kind of unannounced and started questioning some things I had done 
which um, were all in line with what we had spoke about in our last meeting. And I did say to him, you know, I don't think I'm the right advisor for you because, you know, you need an advisor that you can trust, that you're not going to come in and have these questions and, and you know, and be, and be questioning me on, on things that I've done. And so he said, well, no, no, I don't want a new advisor. I want you as my advisor. And I said, well, I'm not sure that I want you as a client. So um, I had that difficult discussion. But and, um, and did you ultimately like say that? I mean, have to say to him, like, oh, yes, I, yes. But I, I don't want to work with you. Right. I don't I don't think that you're the right type of client for me. I work with clients who are more and I explained what I was looking for in a client relationship. And then I remember him saying, but I don't want I don't want you to fire me. And I said, well, let me think about it over the weekend. And then the next morning, I, uh, Monday morning, I sent the letter and <laughs> um, thought about it. You're, you're, yeah. you're still fired. Yeah. Yeah. I was very I've been very intentional about, you know, when I do see red flags with clients um, who I don't feel like value um, the advice I'm giving or don't value the relationship um, of saying, you know, I don't think I'm the right advisor for you. The right advisor for you is someone who you're going to listen to. And if you're not listening to me, then I'm obviously not the right advisor. So um, I do, you know, I have had opportunities where I've had to, what they say, graduate clients, but um, it's always, I feel like I'm always doing it from a place of, you know, you need, you need a different advisor. It's not you, it's me. But um, sometimes I'm thinking, no, it's really you, but (laughs) And so, so you, you you have this wonderful growth cycle from twenty twenty ten to twenty fifteen, and then you had said like you were starting to feel like you were you were maxing out. So I guess like what were you at for clients at that point, and like how did you know you were starting to max out? Um, I had about probably forty five clients in about twenty fifteen, so I was starting to um, I guess feel like. I was working longer hours than I wanted to. Um, I was putting more time in in the office than I thought I needed to. Um, and I needed to kind of come to a decision about whether or not I was going to hire staff at that point. I mean, that was clearly the point where after the other advisor's clients came on board in 2015, I really needed to make a decision and I hired a part-time assistant then. So I had gone for about three years without any support at all. And then I hired a part-time assistant in 2017 and she's still with me now. And she does administrative um, functions and that's, that's fine, but I still do all the planning and the investment management myself. So what happens like after you're at capacity? Um, I guess I try to make, um, when I was at capacity, I I guess at that point, I was never very good with technology. I was never one that was constantly implementing new technology. I used Redtail for my CRM. I had used Portfolio Center for um, portfolio management. I did switch to advise on, which was a big um, help to me in uh, 2020 um, because the portfolio management side of the um, operation was starting to bog me down. I did not have Portfolio Center in the cloud and I wanted everything to be in the cloud because I was starting to travel more and um, be out of the office. So that was a big step forward in terms of getting off of Portfolio Center and getting on to advise on. Um, 
I started using Holistaplan um, of recent. I've just started using technology more to help me um, with the streamlining processes. The other thing is um, I really feel strongly that it's in the, only in the first like three or four years, maybe maybe even just three years, where you're really getting to know the client that it's very labor intensive. So I had clients going back to tw- 2006. Here it was 2016. Yes, I had 45 or 50 clients, but a lot of them, those 45 or 50 had been with me and I knew them like the back of my hand. So if they called me, I had a very um, good handle on what exactly was going on with them personally, with their accounts. So as I took on additional clients in 2018, 2019, 2020, the other 50 or 45 or so were under control, if you if you know what I'm saying. They right. were not as labor intensive. Um, and some of them I would only hear from once or so a year. So it was, it was not um, the same as the first years where I'm trying to get everything in order and try to get to understand the client, what their risk tolerance is, et cetera. And so was there anything, I guess the, maybe the wrong way to frame, but like, was there something magical about 50 clients? And like, did you target 50 as a round number as opposed to 60 or 40? Was it more of a, it just kind of feel like the amount of busyness I have in supporting these 50 clients is feeling like about the right level of busyness. So this is the place I'm going to park and it turns out it's 50. Uh, like just how did that sort of threshold come about for you? Um, I don't, I don't really know exactly. I think it was just, it felt like the right number for me. It was kind of a round number. It was an even number. I, I just felt like that was where I could continue to provide excellent service. And, um, in 2021, I did take on four clients, but I also lost some clients because they had passed away. So it kind of works out that you know, I may take on an additional client in a year, but I'm also, you know, losing a client, let's say, to uh, death that um, I'm always kind of right around the 50 mark, maybe a couple clients more, but then it'll kind of settle back to 50. But um, I don't really feel that I can grow from here without having staff and I don't want to hire staff. So I'm thinking long and hard about what the next couple years will look like um, in terms of merging with an probably most likely merging with another firm by the end of the year because I really would like to continue to work with clients. I just don't have the capacity. But especially working with widows, those first, you know, year of getting them through making some tough decisions and feeling confident in their in their situation. I, I enjoy that and I don't have the ability to do that. And I do get referrals and I, you know, I try to help as much as I can, but I cannot take them on as ongoing investment management clients because I just don't have the capacity. So what happens when like prospects reach out now and you know, you, th- there's no, there's no seats on the bus <laughs> as it were, right. you're at, you're at 50 and no one is imminently moving out to free up a seat. I mean, like just, how, what do you do? How do you handle it? Cause it sounds like like sometimes a, you know, maybe a client has passed away and you are willing to take a new one. Other times someone may reach out, but you don't have room to take a new one. So like, how does this work? 
Well, generally, I'll refer them to uh, NAPFA, uh, the NAPFA website, to find an advisor and try to find somebody in the area. Or I will, refer, if I know if it's a specific, if I know enough about the situation, I will refer them to another advisor that um, that I know in New Jersey who might be looking to take on additional clients. There's a, an advisor who works a lot with um, divorce women who are divorcing. So if there is a situation like um, in that. I will refer them to her. Um, if it's a widowed client, um, I generally try to help them if I can. Um, and that's that's allowed. I have taken on a couple more clients because of that. Um, but, you know, it's it's uncomfortable. It's it's not an easy situation to be in. And that's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm thinking about succession planning, because I would like to be able to continue to take on new clients and help new widows, but um, also have some support for the financial planning and the trading and the rebalancing for my existing long-term clients. And and how does the, the fee structure work for what you're doing at this point? At least it sounds like you've moved away from the planning only work pretty much entirely. So like it's, it's all AUM fees. And, it is. And what does the fee schedule look like for, for what you do? It's generally 1% on the first million dollars, 75 basis points on the second million dollars and 50 basis points on anything over um, $2 million. Okay. And and just one standard fee schedule, everyone fits. It's not like a one fee schedule for widowed clients, one fee schedule for couples. No, it's the same for everybody. And and what's the core, I guess, like technology tools and systems that you use at this point to manage fifty clients and a hundred million dollars as a as a, a pure solo? Well, I use um, Advison for my portfolio management. I um, use their system primarily um, for my client reports, for um, rebalancing, really for anything related to the client um, investments. I also have some high-level notes in um, Advison, but I do not use their CRM. So I'm really just using Advison for portfolio management. I use Redtail for my CRM. Um, I use Holistaplan for uh, for tax planning. And I find that more and more that is where um, I can add the most value with clients. Um especially widowed clients and some of the specific tax um, situations that they're in or ability to, to do Roth conversions and other um, other tax strategies or tax saving strategies. Um, let me think what else I use. Um, TD Ameritrade is my custodian. I use buy all accounts to bring in to portfolio center held away accounts that I charge on. Um I think that's that's pretty much it. I use QuickBooks for my my bookkeeping. Um, and, I might be forgetting something, but oh, I use ShareFile as my document management system, and I also use that as a client portal. Your account aggregation for bio accounts for for bringing in held away accounts is that for is that just for being aware of all the things that are out there, or are you effectively managing or helping to advise on held away assets and actually building on, you know, advised assets that are held away in addition to discretionary assets on TD Ameritrade? I do bill on held away assets. Um, not all held away assets, but initially um, I, I was billing on held away assets. Right now, I, I'm not billing um, on new clients with held away assets. But initially when I was starting my practice, 
you know, there were quite a few clients that had substantial held away assets that I, I was, you know, giving advice on. So I did start billing on them. Of late, I haven't been doing that as much. And I'm just using the, the assets that are at, at TD Ameritrade, the discretionary assets there to bill on. So tell us more about that journey. Like, well, I guess you started with it because it was an opportunity to um, you know, add more value in the relationship and get compensated for that value. Like, what 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 led you? If you were billing on held away assets that you were advising on, what led you to stop that? Um, well, I was bringing in fewer clients um, in the last couple years, and if they had four hundred one ks, they were generally um, at a in a recent job, so there wasn't a large balance in them anyway. It was a very small percentage of their overall investment portfolio, so it almost became more trouble than it was worth to pull to pull them in through buy all accounts. So I just would give them a you know specific asset allocation to maintain in their four hundred one k, and then just take that into account when I was managing their assets that were outside the four hundred one k. Um, a lot of clients had done rollovers, 401k rollovers, because they were moving jobs quite a bit. And so more and more of the assets were coming into TD Ameritrade. And I found that there was less um, held away assets um, with the newer clients that I was working with. So because they were so um, small compared to the overall relationship, I just decided to not bill on them at all. Well, and I maybe i'm just imagining in my head but like i would i would envision a piece of that is probably related to being more fully focused in with widows as well that because a lot of job and career changes tend to happen when a widowhood event happens like much more you know unfortunately like a deceased spouse's retirement plans now get rolled over life insurance gets paid out a job change often happens with widowhood, which means the uh, 401k dollars may be in, in motion and rolling over and, and consolidating anyways. So just it would seem like being more focused with widowed clients in general would tend to end out more often with clients that just don't have significant held away balances because of the widow focus. Exactly. Exactly. That is a large part of it. In the beginning, when I was taking you know a lot of clients who were couples, they may have each had a 401k and it might have been a very, you know, maybe half of their overall investable assets. So you couldn't really provide advice on that, on the the, the mm-hmm. accounts at TD Ameritrade without taking into consideration the accounts held away. And plus also for asset location in terms of, you know, having a specific asset allocation for the 401ks versus having an asset allocation for the taxable accounts, it was becoming, you know, it was complicated. So I felt like I needed to, I needed to charge on the assets um, that were held away, but that is hasn't been so much of a um, a situation um, of late. And I, I think you're right; it's a large part is because working with single women, there tends to be more of a consolidation, and there also tend to be more at a point where um, employment, especially for widows, depending on their age, obviously, is not um, as big a, a consideration. And therefore, um, retirement balances um, are not su- substantial outside right. of um, what they have in their IRAs at TD Ameritrade. And and why why Redtail CRM? Just if if you're in Advise On and it, it does have a CRM offering as part of its system, like I'm just curious what uh, <laughs> what what leads you to have Advise On and and Redtail? Because I'm very bad with technology and I don't like change. The thing is, Michael, I guess the, the th- best way to describe my practice is I've spent a lot of time um, 
uh, working with clients. I have not spent a fair amount of time um, fully integrating my technology or fully understanding the um, the functionality of technology. You know, I I am a late adapter of technology, and I um, you know I have a lot of I'm in a mix group, uh, NAPFA mix group, and there was one woman in our group who was always every time we were at a retreat, she was talking about some new technology she was implementing, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know that would drive me insane, and she's like, oh I love technology, I love fooling around with this, that, and the other thing. I said, okay, whenever you find the best. CRM, can you just let me know? And then she said, yes. And then she told me about Redtail. And I'd say, whenever you find the best (laughs) of this. So I really was, um, you know, I know my strengths. My strengths are being in front of a client, giving them a, um, my full attention in a meeting, having them leave the meeting, knowing that they're in a better place than they were when they came into the meeting, even if I have to give them some difficult news, but that I do it with, you know, um, compassion and with kindness and with, um, you know, a, a sense of a, my broad, bringing my broad knowledge to the meeting. I am not, I do not have the patience to um, learn a new CRM when the CRM I'm using right now is perfectly fine. And, you know, switching from Portfolio Center to Advise On, that was a big step for me because that happened in the beginning of 2020. And that was right around the time of COVID. And I, um, there was a lot going on. There was a lot going on with markets and I needed to get back to clients quickly. And I was learning this new software, but you know what? I did it. And um, with my assistant's help, but that's not what I like doing. That is, you know, like if it's not broke, don't fix it. That's kind of my philosophy. Um, And I know I've been, you know, talking to the people that advise on and they've told me about their, their CRM, but you know what? Red tail works fine for me. All my notes are in there. I know where to find them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy. I kind of, what is it? Keep it simple. I try to keep my practice as simple as possible so that um, I can work with clients and not feel that I'm uh, spending a lot of time working on, um, you know, changing systems in the, in the practice. Well, and I'm, I'm struck to at the end of the day for, you know, all all your comments of technology systems and integration is not my strength. Like, you know, you're, you're running a fantastic practice of a hundred million dollars under management as a, as a solo advisor with one part-time assistant. Like to me, it, it, it still speaks to, you know, there, there really is some pretty amazing leverage and efficiencies that, that come with technology as we just get used to our particular systems, whatever we use and, and, and live into what's there and use them to the best of our ability. Right, right. And I have, and I have done that. I mean, especially using Redtail for as long as I have, I, you know, I, I've, I'm learning something new all the time, but I have a comfort level with it. So if I transition to another CRM and then I need to find a note, I might, you know, be frustrated and that it's not exactly where I want it to be. So, I mean, it's Redtail CRM. It doesn't cost very much either. So it's not even like it's, I'm paying for two softwares where, yeah could be saving a lot of money. I mean, the time that I would spend transitioning from, um, you know, it would be the time, you know, for my hourly rate, it would be like not a good use of time. I'm better off just paying the $99 a month or whatever I pay for, for Redtail CRM versus, you know, the $1,200 of frustration that I would um, incur um, trying to find something and advise on. Yeah. 
I, I do think it's a powerful point. Just a, a lot of advisory firms, I find, really, really underestimate the 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 time and staff challenges and hassles that come with making us a, a system change to right. you know get in like an incremental cost savings on some software. And like, I mean, it's one thing because software B has just this like amazing new feature that you absolutely want that you can't do in A. And so you're going to go to B to achieve the new vision of the thing you can do with the new software. But, uh, you know, like switching software for cost savings alone, just, you know, nice thing about having very profitable advisory firms is, you know, none of our technology is really like deal breaker level. cost to the the, the business, like losing the time of redoing software systems is much more of a business cost than the software itself. And so, as you said, like... When you get to points where it's it's not broken, um, you know it it can really pay to not try to go out of your way to fix something that isn't broken. Right, right. The the one software that I did switch from was I was using BNA um, Tax Planner, yep. and I did switch to Holista Plan, and I'm very happy with that. So that was a switch I made, but I really wasn't fully using um, BNA. I really hadn't ever, I think, got up the learning curve on that. Mm-hmm. So leaving BNA to go to Holista to plan wasn't like I was recreating the wheel. I felt like um, it was um, a new new technology or new software that was not really replacing, for lack of a better word, something else. So that I did, I did like. And I've been with Money Guide Pro for, um, I don't know, since I st- 2006, when I started my practice, when I started doing financial planning. Um, like I said, the advisor I worked with before used Money Tree, and that, I thought that was pretty complicated. But Money Guide Pro, I've been using. Um, but, you know, I can do I can do a financial plan in a two-hour consultation, you know, not a detailed one, but a client can come in for two hours and sit with me. I can pull Money Guide Pro up on the screen and give them a pretty good idea of, you know, what their what retirement could look like for them. Yeah. Um, and so that comes, you know, obviously because I'm very comfortable with it. And like, I, you know, people are like, wait, yeah. you can in two hours or you can sit down and you can input the assets. And yes, because I know my way around. I've been doing it for 16 yeah. years. <laughs> so, I mean, my efficiency, I think comes from the fact that I don't try and change things. I get really good at what I'm doing. And then um, I'm able to, to, you know, use that um, as a way of making client meetings as um, beneficial for them as possible. So I want to go back. You had said much earlier on that part of what had drawn you in the direction of working with widows was that you were talking to widows and and sort of seeing and reflecting that they were not well served by a lot of financial advisors. So I, I... I'm just wondering in terms of what you do right as a as a financial advisor fo- focusing with widows like what what are you doing or how are you engaging with the clients that you work with that you know that fills a void of what's what's not being done well by other advisors Okay well um I think the thing that I do well with recently widowed or widowed clients is um, provide them an opportunity to take things really slow. And I think a lot of advisors, at least from what I'm hearing from other clients, is that um, their advisor wanted them to make changes really fast, fund an account, take the insurance check and put it in an investment account right away, or, or you know, just really... Um, feel that things were kind of being done in a haphazard sort of chaotic way. And I 
I try to use the meetings as sort of single topic meetings. So when you're recently widowed, um, there are so much, there's so much data gathering and, you know, insurance, social security, employee benefits, um, you know, investment accounts, uh, life. It's just, it's, it's overwhelming in terms of the number of um, pieces of information you need to gather. So what I do um, with clients is I have them come in. We, you know, obviously talk extensively about what happened, how their, you know, how their husband passed away, um, anything just to get to know them as, as a person, obviously, and what the experience has been since the passing. And then um, I just kind of say, you know, we're just going to take the next year and we're just going to get everything kind of in, in place. And um, we're going to have a series of meetings and each meeting is just going to be about an hour long and it'll just be a single topic. We'll just work on one thing each time and um, we're going to just get through it. You know, I'm going to help you. I've done it before. I did it for myself. I've done it for many other clients. I've, um, and I'm going to help you. And I, you know, it may seem so overwhelming right now as you're sitting here in the meeting with me, but I can assure you in a year, you're going to be, you know, you know, um, surprised at how much success, how much progress and success you've made. So I think using, um, a process in that first year to make the client comfortable with what to expect is tremendously helpful. And um, I've heard from other widows, you know, oh, my advice, this, you know, I met with somebody and all he wanted to talk about was investments. All he wanted to talk about, and he never asked me what my goal was. He just was asking me about in my investments. And he said, you're just going to be fine. You know, don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. And, and, she's, and she said to me, you know, I didn't want to hear that I'm going to be fine. I wanted someone to have a conversation with me about like, what do you want to do? What's important to you? What are your concerns? So I think when, you know, it's a prime example of slow is fast and fast is slow. And the slower that you can go with a client, the more they trust that you are, you know, they're going to be their partner for the next year and not till the next meeting or till the next investment account is funded. So um, that's what I feel like I try to convey in my initial meeting with a widow. And that usually is something that resonates with them and they decide that they want to work with me. So I guess this I am wondering, you do operate on an on an AUM model. So like how are you getting paid over the you know intervening months or years of lots of meetings and 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 taking it slow? Like is there a structuring around the fee model? Are they ultimately still moving portfolios in a timely manner, even though that doesn't happen to be the focus? Like just how does that work to make sure you are getting compensated for all the stuff you're doing over this year? Right. Well, currently, I'll only take a um, widowed client if they're going to be an ongoing investment management client. I will do a two-hour consultation if a widow comes in and says, you know, I need some financial advice, but, you know, my brother-in-law is helping me or I have my late husband had an advisor through his employer and, but I, but my, you know, neighbor said I should talk to you. So I, yeah, right. So, um, 
they'll come in and I said, well, okay, I'll offer you a two hour consultation and I charge $300 an hour for the two hours and I can answer any questions you have, but that's a consultation. And if in the meeting they say, you know what, um, I would be interested in working with you in the future, or can we stay in touch or something like that? Then yes, um, they would then come on as an investment management client. But most of the women I work with who are widowed tell me up front, I want to work with you. I want you to help me manage my investments going forward. So I, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, I take them at their word for it and I do the work and I do not charge. I do not charge a financial planning fee for the time, the, you know, maybe five or 10 hours that we spend together before they're at a position where they may transfer over an account um, or, um, you know, uh, a 401k or, or something okay. like that. So, you know, I, I feel like it all kind of works out. But if I know that the client is committed up front, then um, I do the work and I know that in the end, it'll all work out. But if a client just comes in and says, you know, I, I have accounts at Vanguard. My husband always had his accounts there. I'm going to keep them there because I think it's good. But I have these 10, 20 questions. I'm like, okay, I'll answer Great. them as best Great. I can. $300 an hour. Let's start talking. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. And then, you know, perhaps they'll decide in the future, you know, I'm going, you know, I'd like to meet with you and um, have you manage my investments. But, you know, a widow is so, you know, um, I don't know, so delicate in some ways that you don't want to put any pressure on them. Like, and I don't put any pressure on them at all. I just say, you know what, it sounds like you're in good hands or it sounds like you've got a plan. If things change, I'm always here for you. And that's kind of the way I leave it. I don't, you know, you know, I don't try to say, oh, no, you shouldn't be listening to your brother-in-law or no, you shouldn't be doing this or that or the other thing. I just kind of say, well, you know, in my experience, you know, just make sure you're comfortable and you understand what you're doing. Sometimes, you know, widows will, you know, take advice that they don't fully understand. So just make sure. So I'll give helpful hints, but I don't ever want to make it feel like I'm pressuring them like, oh, no, you shouldn't be going in this direction. But I do hear all sorts of crazy stories about people that they're getting help from. And I, you know, know, kind of, you know, deli- as delicate as I can <laughs> try to say, oh, well, did you ever think about this? Or maybe right. you could inquire about that. But um, it's worked. It's worked out fine. Um, you know, it's I'm no no worse for the wear. And I say, have, have you have you had a client that was, you know, hey, I'm going to come on board and work with you, Jennifer. And then you go through all these meetings all through this time. And then they walk away and don't end out working with you and don't bring a portfolio and you don't get paid for all that time. Like, does it, does that has not happened? That has not happened. And I'm not sure if I do enough, you know, I'm good enough at screening up front and getting a good feel for the client. Um, But um, that hasn't happened. I did have a, a widowed client recently who I did financial planning work for. Um, and, um, I helped her make a really big decision. And then after that decision, she came on as an investment management client. So her husband had accounts at Schwab and Vanguard. And um, at Schwab, he had like a single, maybe two securities in his Schwab account, in his taxable account. It was a joint taxable account. 
And um, the one security was a growth fund, which had a, you know, I don't know, about 100% capital gain in it, right? He had had it for a long time. It may have even been higher. So what I helped her do is she she did not like the equity allocation that she her husband had in the account. And um, she need she wanted to make it more conservative. So what I helped her do um, through a series of three hundred dollar hourly consultations is we talked to Schwab and we had them take the position and do a full step up on half of the position and do a no step up on the other half of the position. And then we sold the single um, you know the specific lots that had the full step up. So she didn't get hit with a lot of taxes. She didn't need to sell the whole position, but there was at least half of the position needed to be sold. So I did that for her, you know, and that was a series of phone calls with Schwab on the phone to try and get them to, um, to take care of, um, adjusting the cost basis. And that I do that a lot with clients where, mm. um, there's hot, there's low cost basis. So, um, she was like, wow, that was really helpful. And I, you know, explained how, how she didn't have to pay any taxes in the year that she wanted to do the, the rebalance. And, um, then she became an investment management client. So lots of times, if I, you know, add value in those consultations, the client will ultimately come on, but I don't want to pressure anybody. But I think if you lead with just good work and creativity and experience, because I'm work primarily with widows, I know, you know, how important, you know, Roth conversions are for widows with low, um, in low tax years, you know, especially if they're living off of social security and and insurance, you know, that's a great time to do Roth conversions. And even if they're, you know, the two following years after the year of death, you can still file as a um, married filing joint if you have a dependent child. And so there's so much that is nuanced for widows that when you demonstrate that, you know, you are an expert in this field and you work, you have a you know, tremendous experience working with clients just like them, um, that is really um, powerful to be able to um, have a client feel comfortable working with you. So I guess in that vein, just how do you explain like value of financial planning and working with an advisor when you're talking to a, a widow prospect? Like, how do you explain the value of what, what you do, what the firm does? I try to say that I'm going to be here with you for a very long period of time, helping you make good decisions as your life changes and as life goes on. So as much as you know, you can do a financial plan and you can get everything in order um, initially um, when you're recently widowed, and you can kind of come up with a plan, life changes, you know, you get remarried, or you have a child with a developmental disability that you're going to need to um, consider when making financial planning um, decisions at the end, or even at the end of life. I recently had a client who passed away earlier in the year from a brain tumor. And um, we redrafted her estate documents, or I helped her redraft and think about redrafting them because she had, from when she originally drafted them to now, her children have, um, you know, had some specific issues that she wanted to protect them against. So I, you know, basically they're getting a permanent place. I'm, you know, I'm providing them a permanent place in their life so that they have the ability to call me at any moment and um, get clarification or get recommendations from an advisor who's known them for a series of years. So I um, 
I really think that, you know, it's it, financial planning is a process. It's not just the plan. It's not just you put down the plan and this is it. And now I'm just going to ma- manage your investments for the rest of the, you know, our relationship. It's being there every step of the way, no matter what's happening. And um, I think as a single person, you like to know that. And you like to know that they're unbiased. You know, I'm not your brother-in-law. I'm not your son. I'm not. And sometimes I have to play the tough person. You know, I'll say to the client, will you just tell your son that your advisor doesn't think it's, you know, it's prudent to lend you $200,000 now to, you know, buy a vacation home because you need the money for your own financial independence. So sometimes, you know, just having somebody who you can talk to and in some situations who can be the bad guy or be the blame person (laughs) has been very helpful. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what surprised you the most about building an advisory business? Um, how, um, rewarding it would be, how much of an impact you can have on people's lives. I really, you know, I think about people who are in jobs that don't really have any direct impact on making somebody's life better. And I think that wouldn't be a very, you know, fulfilling career for me, right? So if I was in data technology or something like that, that would just be an awful, an awful uh, way to wake up in the morning and say, that's what I'm doing. So I think the fact that I have a career and a practice where I can impact people's lives and I, you know, can love what I'm doing and feel that I'm good at it and get paid well to do it. I think that that's, you know, that's, that's a surprising Plus that I never, you know, when I embarked on, you know, 16 years ago, thinking that I would have the ability to have a career that would have provided me with so much satisfaction. So what was the low point on this journey for you? I would say um, COVID, um, you know, all of 2020, maybe from from COVID through the election, through, um, you know, the beginning of 2021, it was really hard. I mean, I, you know, you're an advisor and you're, you know, you're telling your clients it's not different this time, you know, markets bounce back and thankfully they did very quickly in 2020. But, you know, there were times I thought, no, this time it's different. You know, this is different. This, we, you know, this is a pandemic. This is not a, you know, a recession or the global financial crisis. This is something that's like unprecedented. So, I mean, that, that was a, a low point. And, you know, I looked to other advisors for support and, you know, reaching out and just, you know, having discussions about, you know, supporting each other through that time, because that was the, that was a hard time to be a solo advisor, I think. So what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from 15 years ago when you were getting started? Mm, um, I think I would have hired a, a full-time uh, either client service administrator or um, uh, a financial advisor full-time, you know, because I think that I would have been able to um, reach even more clients uh, if I did and, um, you know, offload some of the work that I do now that, you know, isn't so client facing. So I think if I had started earlier, you know, who knows what, what things would be like, but I guess, you know, take a little bit of a leap of faith. I mean, I took it very slow um, and that worked well for me. And I think a lot of that had to do with my own personal situation, 
but um, don't be afraid to invest um, in, you know, websites or, you know, employees or put the money in early because once you get to that inflection point where you're able to cover your own expenses, um, everything's gravy after that. And that's just a wonderful feeling. So what comes next for you? So, yes, that's interesting that you ask that. I um, I had always thought that my daughter, who is 30 years old and she works in financial services, um, would be my succession plan. And um, she had been telling me for several years that she um, was thinking about it and considering getting her CFP and and joining me. And it was just in March of this year that she confided that, um, you know, she had thought long and hard about it. And she, she does not want to um, take over Stonebridge Financial Advisors. So it was really hard to hear, but um, she gave me a really good reason and I couldn't argue with it. And so I... Um, so has she been like involved in the firm in, in the past in working with you and working with clients or like that, that would have been the, the step, the journey from here. And she decided she didn't want to go down that path. Exactly. The latter. She had not worked with my clients. She works in New York City for a financial services firm. And um, she would have had to come on, you know, in 2022, I was thinking, and then work with me for a series of years until I was ready to maybe um, work less in the business and have her take on more of the client relationships. And um, since that's not going to be happening, and I'm, you know, at a point where in my career where I have to start thinking about succession planning, I've decided that I'm going to pursue a merger with um, another firm, hopefully by the end of the year. I'm sort of in the beginning stages of discovery at this point and having conversations, but I think that... Um, I need to find um, a place for my clients. And God forbid, I mean, I recently had a friend pass away a couple months ago, 63 years old, otherwise very healthy. And, you know, you realize that I don't want, um, you know, not that I think that's going to happen to me, but if God forbid it does, I want to know that my clients are in a good place. And I also want to know that, you know, I can have a little bit of a renewed sense of maybe business development. If I'm, if I'm merging into a larger firm where some of the trading and the rebalancing and the compliance and all that is taken off my plate um, and support with financial planning and meeting prep, then that will give me the opportunity to go out and be able to help more widows, especially in the first couple of years that are so critical. And um, it might just give me another like a little bit of a, a restart or like a little bit of a boost to my career. Um, you know, and change things up a little bit, I guess, for lack of a better word. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means really different things to different people. And so, you know, you've had this wonderful path of success with the, you know, fantastic practice of kind of the, the, the 50 great clients. So, you know, like the, the business has worked well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, um, I, I think professional success for me is finding that sweet spot between, you know, having found the sweet spot between loving what I do, doing something that is needed um, in the in the world, and and being good at it. So it's kind of like in the flow. Like I just feel like when I'm in a client meeting, I'm mm -hmm. it's just flowing. Um, 
and being paid well, you know, being valued um, and paid for what I bring to the client relationship. So I think professional success for me is just having found a, um, a career where, you know, I love what I do. I'm doing good work. I'm good at it and I'm paid well for it. Um, so, and, you know, per- personal success, I guess, is, you know, being able to take that professional success and integrating it into your life so that you have professional success, but you also have enough space in your life so that professional success isn't all it's about and that you also, you know, have time to nurture relationships and and learn new things outside of business. So that business isn't your whole life, but that the part, that large part of your life where you are working, that your future feeling the professional success that you want. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It was really fun. I appreciate it. I do too. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.